Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Chapter 2, Colossians, the first ten verses. This is uh, the word of God. God speaks through this. Yes, a man named Paul of Tarsus wrote this. He is the human author, but it has a divine author, and the words of this letter are uh, completely the words of both man, Paul, and God, the triune God. And so, because God is also the author, there are no mistakes in it. Uh, He is speaking clearly uh, through it, and you can trust it with your very eternal destiny. So let's listen reverently to the word of God as I read Colossians 2, 1 through 10. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am present, um, I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for being a God who And we thank you that you have communicated clearly uh, the way by which sinners such as ourselves may be reconciled to you, a sin-hating, thrice-holy God. We thank you that you have communicated that truth clearly in your written word that I have just read a portion of. We ask, Lord, that as we consider this portion of your word, that you would instruct us, but Lord, that we would not merely be instructed with um, knowledge that is mere knowledge. Knowledge uh, that is mere knowledge is a waste. 
in many respects and even dangerous to our souls when it comes to knowledge of you and your will. We, Lord, ask for knowledge that transforms us. And we pray that you would help us in this endeavor through this means of grace, which is preaching. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, let me see where are all the children. Where are the little ones? Do we have any little ones? Okay, we have, you guys aren't little ones. Uh, <laughs> you're littler than some of you, some of our, but uh, anyway, um, you all know people, right? You know, probably at, uh, at this point, uh, you less than little ones know a lot of people. Um, you have friends down the street, you may know the mailman, uh, you know members of your extended family, and you know people in this church, and you know lots of people, I would imagine, in your life. Um, maybe somebody at the grocery store, you know, the checkout clerk or something. I don't know who you know, but you know a lot of people. And you know some people really, really well. Your siblings, that's your brothers or your sisters. Your mom and your dad, your grandparents. Um, your cousins, perhaps. And maybe some other people as well, uh, friends that you have. But there are other people that you just know very casually. You know, you call, know their name and, you know, you've had a conversation or two or three or four with them, but uh, you don't know them real well. You don't have a deep knowledge of them. Uh, and then there are people that are in between those two extremes. Some people you know fairly well. Uh, you might call them acquaintance friends um, versus just merely acquaintances. But um, we know different people in different, to different degrees. Well, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God, who is three persons and one God, is a God who, though we may start out knowing him I don't, want to even, I don't want to even use the word casually, but knowing relatively little about him at the beginning of our walk with him, of our friendship with him, who wants us to know him deeply. And this passage is basically telling us that. Now, I'm going to cover certain things in this passage a little bit more uh, carefully than certain other things. There's a lot that's being said here, and I could tell you a little bit of, uh, more about the churches in the Lycus, uh, uh, Lycus, River Valley, Laodicea, Heriopolis, uh, and uh, Colossae, but we're not going to talk about that uh, because I don't have the time. But um, the message here is that God wants to be known and known deeply and profoundly by us as people. And that includes you children, and you that are halfway adults, too. Uh, we all are required, and it's a privilege, to know God deeply. And particularly to know our Savior, God the Son, enfleshed the Lord Jesus Christ, Deeply, through whom we get to know the full Godhead deeply by knowing Christ. He is the uh, conduit or the avenue by which we know the triune God deeply ourselves. So this 
that's the, the point, really, of this. Uh, there are three points, but uh, that's the overall overarching point of all three of the points that you're going to hear in just a moment. But first, we're going to get a little background here. There appear to have been two major dangers that believers, the believers in the Colossian church in Colossae were facing when Paul was writing this letter. Uh, these were dangers, in fact, that prompted Paul uh, to, to actually write them and send this letter to them. Uh, a, a church, by the way, that he almost certainly had not met, uh, had not been to Colossae himself, uh, and most of the people in the church there and probably in that whole area had not uh, had contact with Paul. Perhaps a few did, but most of them had not. Anyway, Paul uh, is writing them about these two dangers, or because of these two dangers. The first is they were in danger, it's very clear, um, in this chapter in particular, that they were in danger of embracing, or at least many of them were, a, the teachings of certain false uh, prophets, false teachers, who were trying to convince the people there, the Christians there, that there were key elements that were missing from their Christian life that they needed. Elements that Epaphras, who appears to have been the founding pastor, who was an assistant to Paul, uh, failed to share with them or teach them when he was founding the church. He left some things out that, uh, that these, uh, these uh, enlightened teachers were here to uh, help the Colossians understand the deeper things of God, so to speak. And it was heresy. And uh, these folks are in danger of embracing, embracing uh, elements of this heresy and taking their eyes off Christ um, thereby or further, if that was the case. A second danger that uh, it's pretty evident that uh, they were facing was the danger of falling back into certain certain grossly immoral practices that characterized their non-Christian life prior to their becoming Christians. He speaks of this over in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. He lists a whole series of sins there, and gross, pretty gross sin, actually, that um, we'll deal with, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But uh, these seems to have been the major, two major dangers that he was most uh, concerned about and which prompted him to write this letter. But we're going to deal with the first, that is the heretical teachings uh, today and in the subsequent uh, uh, weeks from now before we get to the sins, uh, the gross immorality. Anyway, it is highly likely, by the way, that these false teachers were trying to promote their supposed spiritual insights or teachings as the very tools that the Colossian Christians needed to enable them to resist whatever temptations they were facing to resume their old unholy lifestyles. So in other words, we have the key to help you not going back to the pigsty of your pagan practices. But you need to, you need to adopt what we're teaching. That appears to have been the relationship between the two things. That is the heresy and, the, uh, and their danger of, uh, of falling back into gross sin. Well, anyway... Here, in chapter 2, Paul identifies and then goes after, attacks, major elements of this Colossian teaching, this heresy. And they're, they're dealt with um, in this chapter, largely, actually, in the letter. This heresy, this Colossian heresy, included a philosophical component. Uh, you heard me read of uh, in verse 8 of, through philosophy, 
There was clearly a, a philosophical component to their teaching. The false teachers did, that denied Christ's sufficiency in all things in the life of the Christian. You need something more than just Jesus, was essentially what they appear to have been saying in a philosophical language. They had a Jewish component uh, that attached great importance to the continued observance of Old Testament ceremonial laws by New Testament believers. Um, they thought that was important, and they they had uh, per, they even perverted the the Ju- Judaistic component themselves from uh, Old Testament Judaism. But that was very important to what they were teaching the people or trying to. And they also there was uh, their their heresy promoted interaction with angelic figures, uh, perhaps to help mediate between Yahweh and the Christian a little bit better than Jesus' mediation supplied. Uh, it's hard to believe, but that appears to have been perhaps what uh, these people were suggesting. And then finally, in this heresy, it included an emphasis on harsh treatment uh, of the body, self-denial, and that sort of thing to help subdue one's sinful uh, proclivities and passions. So that's the background, and that leads me to the three uh, points, and which are as follows. We're first going to look at our need of a deep and biblical understanding of the person and work of Christ. We're then going to look at doctrinal, doctrinal components of a deep and biblical understanding of the person and work of Christ. And finally, and briefly, reasons, too, actually, uh, that we must possess a deep and biblical understanding of the person and work of Christ. So first, we have a need to. And uh, this is most evident in chapters, excuse me, in verses 2 and 7 of our text. I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit and make references to different verses here. Uh, but 2 and 7 kind of make this point in particular. Um, at any rate, he, we have a need to be deep, as I already mentioned to the children. We need to know Christ deeply, Paul is saying here. And he speaks of this need in verse 2. two. I'll start back in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting, and here it is, in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, Christ being the mystery that we need to know. And we talked a few weeks back about what uh, Paul's understanding of mystery is, something that was previously uh, 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 concealed but has now been revealed. And um, so he says there, he uses the word true knowledge there at the end of verse 2. And To have a deep understanding and a biblical understanding of Christ, his person, his work, requires that our knowledge of him be true. That is to say, be accurate, be correct, be biblical. That our knowledge be in line with what the Bible teaches about him and doesn't deviate from that teaching. There are so many people that have a different Christ than the Bible presents to us that call themselves Christians. There's a young man I know uh, who's, who's, who's become a good friend of mine, and we've been having conversations, um, and he is not, um, he's not in a uh, 
good church. I'll just put it that way. And uh, But he believes the Bible. Says he does. And he does. But uh, we've been conversing over the months, and he regularly will cite... Jesus' declaration in John 14, 9, which, where Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he will bring that up with great regularity. And then, after quoting it, he will insist, Look, Jesus said it. This proves that Jesus is the Father and that the Father is Jesus. This is one less Pentecostalism I'm referring to. Now, Jesus did say that. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Um, If we had no other Bible verses that dealt with, that talked about, that referenced um, the relationship between the Father and Jesus, than that particular Bible verse that he cited, or cites to me, then this young man's conclusion about what Jesus meant there in John 14.9 might well be warranted that Jesus is the Father, and the Father is Jesus. However, as I hope you've already anticipated what I'm about to say, there are probably hundreds of other passages that speak, to some degree at least, of the relationship and the kind of relationship that subsists between the Father and Jesus the, the Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and, it's, and that those passages must be taken into account when we are interpreting Jesus' statement in John 14.9. And my young friend all but ignores these verses. Now, he says he doesn't, but the truth is he really does. And he does so in an effort to hold on to a view that he's familiar with and comfortable with because of his training and his upbringing. Now, you and I, if we are to be faithful Christians and followers of Christ, we must always, always utilize all of the relevant passages in the Bible concerning who Jesus is and what he has accomplished to formulate our understanding of what any given verse about him means, including John 14.9. This method of interpretation, taking all the relevant biblical data to, to uh, understand any particular singular verse or passage, is known as uh, the analogy of Scripture. If Trey were here, he'd give me a, a, the, the Latin. It's Analogia Scriptura, I believe. It's the analogy of Scripture. And that method must be employed if we are to arrive at an internally consistent and therefore biblically accurate understanding of what the Bible teaches concerning who Jesus is or, and what he did, and any other doctrine, by the way, even though the focus of this passage is Christ, particular, particularly. We must, imp- we must be careful exegetes of Scripture. Careful theologians. You must be a careful theologian. Of course I must be a careful theologian, but you must be so as well, and not rely on me to do your theo- theologizing. Yeah, exactly. You must compare Scripture with Scripture when you are trying to understand 
especially the more difficult passages. Uh, and like our, you can make the case that John 14, 9 is, is not exactly easy for a Trinitarian when you first come across it, like, whoa. So we have to do that. We have to go, okay, let me, let me, let me find out what else the Bible says on the subject and then come to a conclusion after careful thought. Also, by the way, asking ourselves, this is still on interpreting scripture now, uh, about Christ in particular, but all of scripture and any, any topic, we are to ask ourselves also what the church at large has historically uh, and generally understood some passage to be teaching that is also a critical is also critical to helping us understand what scripture does or does not teach as a whole on some doctrinal issues especially regarding Christ or, or any, any any doctrine what is the church uh has the church uh more or less universally understood this to be teaching a certain thing and the answer is yes on in many places not all places are uh, you know, uh, but many places, that too will help you not veer off into crazy land when you're reading your Bible. So, you must know and have a accurate and true knowledge of Jesus' person and what he did, his work, his redemptive or atoning work. But you must not only have knowledge uh, a true knowledge, I should say, uh, an accurate knowledge. Yes, that's extremely important. But God also requires, commands, uh, you and me to have a knowledge of Christ's person and work which is growing ever deeper and more profound. You are not allowed to rest on your doctrinal laurels. None of us are. It's a sin. Now, there is nothing at all wrong with having a simple, childlike, rudimentary understanding of who Jesus was and is and what he did when you first become a Christian. Most of us don't start out as theologians when we ask Jesus to have mercy upon us. We understand basic stuff. He's the mediator, and the, my only hope of getting being forgiven by, by God, and uh, and so I'm crying out to Him to have mercy upon my soul. That's that's what a person needs to know to to respond to the gospel correctly. A few other things too, but that that portion of it. But no, we, um, but God calls upon us, all of us, you teenagers, you adults, you old people. Excuse me, I didn't call anybody old just then. You, you more, more mature folks, like myself. <clears throat> God calls upon all of us to, and I quote from 1 Peter 2, 2 here, to long for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. We are to long for a deeper knowledge and understanding of the written word. That's what Peter is saying there. But to what end? So that we might be able to recite scripture backwards and forwards to our friends? Or ourselves? No. 
the, the purpose of longing for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect to salvation is so that we might know the one that scripture is all about. Who, to whom does the entire Bible point? From Genesis to Revelation, the written word that we are called to long to know is all about the enfleshed word, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, through whom we know the triune God better and better. But we have to know him more and more and better and better and deeper and deeper. And God, through that verse and others, essentially commands that. And besides, even if he didn't command it, if Jesus has truly laid hold of you, truly given you a new heart, and all you need is a mustard seed of faith, but you have at least that mustard seed of faith in Christ, you won't be satisfied with a shallow, basic understanding of Jesus and what he did, at least not for very long, for any long stretches of time. Yes, there, there are spiritual desert times in our, in our spiritual walk at times, sad to say. But it's not going to last. If you, you just won't be satisfied. You'll, you'll feel like you're shriveling on the vine. No. You'll, if you're a Christian, you'll want to know him better and better. You'll want to draw closer to him. You'll want to more fully understand and grasp what he has done for you and how much and how unconditionally he loves you in spite of who you are and I am. You need to know him and you need it needs to be your goal to know him more deeply than you know him now. And your knowledge of Christ may not, must not merely be, and I've already made this point, and but almost repeating myself, it may not be merely intellectual knowledge, accumulation of facts. The knowledge that you have of, of the triune God and of, of the mediator in particular, your king and your savior, must move your soul. It must draw you closer to him. It must make you want him more. And more of him. And it will draw you closer to him. Or it it must. Spiritually, emotionally, and volitionally. Closer to your Savior. By the way, You may not always intensely desire this, to draw closer to the Lord. Sadly, uh, I've had dry times in my life, spiritually, uh, and I still struggle with it. You may not perfectly desire, you won't perfectly desire Jesus. You won't or may not uh, consistently desire Jesus, but you will desire Jesus, to some degree, and to some increasing degree. And if you know it's not the degree of desire that you should have, cry out and say, Lord, stir my heart. Stir my affections for you.
Okay. You get the point. You and I need to have a deep and biblical, uh, a, a deep and biblical understanding of the person work and work of Christ. Doctrinal components of that. Second point. Three, verse three and verse nine are from where I get these uh, these doctrinal components. First, verse nine. Verse 9 says, in him, and he's referring to Christ, of course, who we just mentioned in the previous verse, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. To understand, have a more profound uh, understanding uh, and a deep understanding of, and a biblical understanding of the person and work of Christ, you must know who he is and what it means that he is the Christ. It means, and you must believe this, that he was and continues to be fully, truly, somebody just recently said truly is probably a better word than fully, both, divine, God. He is fully God, not a third of God, which is what we're accused of by our uh, doctrinal opponents um, uh, in one of the circles. But that we are, uh, uh, actually they say we're tritheists, which is not quite the same thing. At any rate, um, those who misrepresent us, that's what I mean to say. But he is truly God. The only, only, only a mediator, only a redeemer who is fully and truly divine can rescue you and me from the punishment that we all deserve on account of our sins. Why? Because it is only the infinite God himself, who can fully absorb and quench his own infinite wrath against sin. Infinity requires infinity, you see. Jesus of Nazareth was and is fully and truly God. And this, that same verse also says he, that uh, fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This, of course, is a reference to his humanity. He doesn't reference, uh, mention particularly there the spirit, the human spirit of Jesus, which he had, human soul, human spirit, um, human will. But it's a reference to his humanity there. It's a clear reference to his humanity. Only a fully human mediator can represent you. You're human. I'm human. Only a human mediator can represent you and act on your behalf in such a way that you get the benefit. He had to be you. Not sans sin. But he had to be you and me. Human. And Jesus of Nazareth was and is fully us without sin. That's part of the uh, understanding Jesus um, in a deeper way. A lot of people who call themselves Christians may not be able to articulate what I just articulated. No, not the way I did, but you know what I mean. Say that about Jesus. Um, you got to understand. And, 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 and then trying to grasp the fact that um, the divinity of Jesus, Jesus, God and man in the person of Jesus came together in such a way that God it didn't create a third kind of thing. Uh, the... the, the uh, Academics of old, the medievals used to call that a tertium quid. Jesus didn't, his divinity didn't meld into his uh, humanity. 
He remained fully God and truly God and truly man, but in one person. That's where our oneness friends don't understand what's going on. But to think on that and to ponder that and to go, what does that mean? And you know, and just go, wow. That's what we gotta um, we gotta try to do. Another thing that's taught in this passage about about who this Christ, who is the God's mystery, is is we learn in verse ten that he uh, he is over all rule and authority, all. And this is this is the God Man now, the enfleshed God Man who is still enfleshed, albeit in glorified flesh. Still fully human and fully God. After the completion of his mediatorial work on your behalf and mine, the incarnate Son, uh, following his ascension into an enthronement in heaven, he was handed over, uh, he handed over to him was the sovereign rule of everything. Heaven and earth, everything was given to him. in such a way that every created thing, living or non-living, was under and beholden to, and is beholden to, his supreme, absolute, messianic, royal authority and will. Nothing is left to chance. There is no such thing. Don't say good luck. It means nothing. And it's kind of a denial of what the Bible teaches. Every once in a while, I... Falls out of my mouth. I'm still trying to break myself of a habit. Nothing is left to chance, including our pain, by the way, and our sorrows. But Jesus holds it all, and he is presently ruling over the entire time, space, matter continuum to the ends of the universe and beyond. He is presently ruling. And he's ruling on behalf of the other persons of the Godhead as well as himself. You see, rule, kingly rule of the universe went from the triune God in the Old Testament to the messianic king in the New Testament age. It's the, he is the one through whom the Trinity is ruling right now. And no, we're not waiting for him to rule until the millennium. We're in it. And this should, this should, what I've just told you about his, that he's over all and rules sovereignly, supremely. That should be a source of real comfort. Hopefully it is. As you look at our own nation's increasing wickedness and hostility to the gospel and to God. As you observe the growing instability and anarchy in our world. And as you consider your own personal trials and sorrows. God's in there. And no, he's not out to get you in spite of the pain you might be going through because of your loss or your um, hurt. Things may appear to be increasingly chaotic and out of control in your life or in the world, but 
the Bible assures us they are not out of control. Also, a doctrinal fact, uh, doctrinal truth, rather, that uh, is part and parcel of having a deep uh, and true understanding of Christ and his work is the fact that Jesus is the, I'll just put it the way Paul puts it in verse 3 there, in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, hidden in Christ. All facts, all reality, which is to say all the facts about everything, exhaustively, all that is true and real, exhaustively speaking, is derived from the mind of the triune God. The heart, the mind, however you you want to term it. And because the second person of the triune God, of the Trinity, that the second person alone is also not only God, but one of us, through his humanity, creaturely as regards his human nature, because that's the case, he serves as the channel through which any and all wisdom and knowledge from God flows to us in the world, and particularly to those of us who are his children. He is that conduit. He, all, there it is, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden and, I would add, dispensed through him. See why it's so important to know him better? And this means that it is only by diligently seeking to know him better and more deeply that you will come to possess greater wisdom and knowledge of the things that really matter in this life and in the next. Now it's important to say that we must seek to draw nearer and closer to Christ, have more intimacy with the Lord Jesus. We must seek to do that first and foremost on account of who he is and what he has done for, not, done for us, and not principally on account of the things that he can do for us, like grow us in wisdom and, and discernment and knowledge. Yes, he can and will do that, but we shouldn't. We, we must seek him for who he is. Uh, as we seek the great giver for his own sake, he will give us blessed gifts as we do that, gifts such as godly wisdom and knowledge. But we must not seek for the knowledge. The Gnostics did this. They were all about seeking knowledge. Didn't care about God. God was just a tool, a genie in a lamp to get the knowledge. That's wicked. It's idolatrous. And then we must also understand as a doctrinal component of... uh, how did I put it there? Sorry, I've got too many pages up here. As the doctrinal component of a deep and biblical understanding of who Christ is and what he's done, we must also understand that anything and everything that you and I need to be complete is found in him. That's, again, chapter uh, verse 10. And in him you have been made complete or mature, or it can be translated, I don't think is the right translation, but perfect. I think mature or uh, complete are the best uh, translations there in that context. 
but in him you have been made already, in one sense, complete. He's all you need. It's in him you see that that is the case. The false teachers were asserting that the Colossian Christians needed something more than just Jesus to be spiritually complete. But Peter says that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to us through our true knowledge, Peter says, over in 2 Peter 1, 3, through our true knowledge of Christ. Everything pertaining to life, pretty broad, expansive, and godliness, that's pretty broad and expansive too. Jesus, look to Jesus. Are you looking to Jesus for And this means, this point that we are complete in him and only in him, this means that you and I must never, must never look anywhere else for our spiritual, emotional, whatever, well-being. Or to look somewhere else or someone else to fulfill our spiritual, emotional needs or whatever needs we might have. We shouldn't look to our parents. We shouldn't look to our mentors, our spouses, our children, our religious experiences, our pastors. Now, God uses those people, perhaps, but we must not look at those people. You must not look at me or the other elders here, or if we ever get deacons to deacons. You must look to Christ. And it also means we must never allow ourselves to grow tired of seeking and pursuing just Jesus. He must truly be our first love. And we need to ask him for, our for, for forgiveness when he is not and beseech him to make himself such in our hearts and our lives. And lastly, and very briefly, and I really mean that, Natalie sometimes says, you say briefly and then you keep going. Um, Reasons, just two reasons that you and I must possess a deeper and biblical, a deep and biblical understanding of the person and work of Christ. First is mentioned in verse 2, and that is on account of the wealth. He uses the word wealth in the New American Standard. It can be translated riches, uh, bounty, whatever. But on account of the wealth that you will come to possess as a result of having such a deep and biblical understanding. He speaks there, again I'll read this, just, just verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. He's clearly, when he uses the word wealth, alluding to the spiritual riches, not to material riches, although they might be tossed in there. I'm not going to say that isn't, you know, might not sometimes be the positive. But spiritual riches that he's talking about, that with which he will bless you as you grow in your knowledge and love, which the knowledge must produce in you if it's to be God-honoring knowledge of your Savior and your King. He will bless you, folks. Yes, it's sometimes hard work to seek the Lord. It's often hard work to seek the Lord. I struggle with distractions. I'm easily distracted. You all know that. 
it's hard work for me to concentrate, to make the time discipline myself. I confessed that sin this morning. To, to get, get, get to it. Seek God. And don't think about it, by the way, as I need to go read my Bible and pray. And pray. Yes, you do. But you need to go seek the Lord. And he uses prayer and Bible reading. We're seeking God. We're not, you're not going, I read my Bible today. Check. We're seeking God. So, you will be blessed as you do so, as you pursue a deeper and more profound and biblical understanding of Christ and who he is. And secondly, you must do this, or a reason you should do this, is in order to prevent you from being duped into subtle, seemingly plausible teachings which are nonetheless untrue. He had said what he said in verse 2 about the, uh, the true knowledge of God's mystery and uh, so on and so forth in Christ himself. And he said, in whom is hidden all the treasuries and wisdom of knowledge. And then he said in verse 4, I say this, in other words, what I just said to you, I just said that, in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. That's the principal reason I'm telling you what I just told you about having a true knowledge of Christ an increasing knowledge of Christ, so that you wouldn't be duped. And then he says over in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive, um, enslaves you, in other words, through philosophy, an empty deception according to the tradition of men. Tradition of men refers to the customs and opinions of men in contrast Here it does, in contrast to God's revealed truth. And Paul and the Holy Spirit, speaking through him, are making the point there, I just made it, but I'll say it again, in verses 3 and 4, when you take them together, that a single-minded pursuit of deeper knowledge of Christ is the best way to avoid being taken in by seemingly plausible but ultimately erroneous teachings. Fix your eyes on Jesus. There are former members of this church who have been duped by such subtle, alluring, persuasive arguments. And it could happen to any one of us, including yours truly, if we are careless about the kind of notions that we entertain in our heads that deviate from what we are told in Scripture. And the key to not being taken in by such sophistries, that's what the medieval, uh, that's what the reformers referred to them as, sophistries. Subtle but deceptive arguments. The key to not being taken in by such um, spiritual trash is by continuing to fix our eyes on Christ and pursuing him through the means that he's appointed. He's appointed. 